I give ourselves a 10. <laughs> of course you do. Why not an 11? Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Oh, I got the feeling that something ain't right. It is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM, people powered radio in LA. In Oregon on 91.7 KYAQ on the Central Coast, 106.7 KSO in Cottage Grove. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on 88.5 KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN 94.1. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV 102.3, in Washington, D.C. on 105.5, and in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on your internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Workforce Rising, Detour Talk, Radio Sputnik, and other fine affiliates, terrestrial and otherwise. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, an all-around swell fellow, says me, just trying to make it through the week from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us and trying to make it through the week with us. We hope we make it a little bit easier. Don't know. Do we make it easier, Desi Doyen? Or do I we have just, no idea. I have no, or, or do we just uh, panic the whole world? Uh, <laughs> well, I hope not. And make them share our own panic. Uh, coming up, we will... Um, Speaking of panic, we will never stop talking, it seems, about health care and the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. Apparently, we'll just it, this this fight will never end. Even a bipartisan plan to fix the mess that Donald Trump created late last week. Uh, a plan that uh, congressional reporter Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo reports late today has the support now of some 24 U.S. senators, about 12 on each side of the aisle. Even that plan to clean up one of these one of the, the huge messes, another one of the huge messes that Donald Trump created last week, that bipartisan plan may now be in peril after the president had specifically asked for this specific fix to this specific problem that he created last week. And even after he lauded the bipartisan agreement just two days ago, now he suggests he could never support such a thing. Uh, we will be speaking with uh, Olstein shortly on Capitol Hill uh, to figure out the latest response to Donald Trump's Schizophrenia. Is that a fair word at this point, Des? Yeah, I think so. I, I, and and we'll see if it's possible Although for... Although it's really not fair to schizophrenics, I have to say. Well, but... okay, true. Uh, well, anyway, we'll talk to Olstein to see if it's possible for any legislation of note at this point to be passed 
by this Republican Congress in either chamber, where they control both uh, the majority in both chambers. Uh, boy, what a mess. Also, speaking of messes, uh, Desi Doyen in the Green News Report. <laughs> yes, we have be, a lot. <laughs> actually, we did, there's a lot of news in there. Uh, actually, uh, some good news, but uh, this uh, target that they are drawing once again, I should say still, uh, on the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, uh, it's on the chopping block, and this time they may get away with it, what they're planning to do. Uh, we'll have news on uh, some encouraging news out of California here on those wildfires a little bit. Um, of course, Puerto Rico and U.S. Virgin Islands are still struggling in the wake of Hurricane Maria. Uh, so that's ahead. But on Puerto Rico, you'll be happy to know, Des, that things are going great. They're, <laughs> they're going great. Could not have been a better response, in fact, uh, to the uh, to the hurricanes, to the two hurricanes in Maria. Could not have been a better response than the uh, one that Donald Trump and his federal government uh, brought to that uh, island. Uh, I was going to say island nation, but to that island. Territory. Of, uh, yeah, territory of 3.5 million U.S. citizens. President Donald Trump this afternoon gave the federal government's hurricane response in Puerto Rico a 10 out of 10 answering reporters questions in the Oval Office for more than 30 minutes on Thursday alongside the island's governor, Ricardo Rosseo. Trump repeated the phrase early and often. I'd say it was a 10. I give ourselves a 10. All of the armed forces, what they've done has been uh, Army, Navy, the Marines, the Air Force. Uh, all of the goods dropped in, helicopters that weren't even meant for this purpose. All of a sudden, they're delivering food and services. I would give a 10. It's a 10. It's Easily. a 10. Easily a 10. It's the he, most beautiful, bestest ever recovery that anyone has ever attempted. He was very, very proud of himself. A 10, which means, of course, uh, it could not have been any better because he was asked on a scale of 1 to 10 how well the uh, federal response went, and it was a 10. At one point, he even attempted uh, to draw similar praise from Puerto Rico's governor, wh who was sitting right there, reliant now on uh, on Trump's moods. The entire island is. Uh, Trump asked the governor if he thought he, too, was doing as uh, as great as the president claimed that he was doing. This is our opportunity, uh, again, to showcase that uh, Puerto Rico, uh, U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico, can uh, come out of this catastrophe stronger than ever before. Governor, I just want to maybe ask you a question, because for the spirit of these people that have worked so hard oh and boy. so long, Here he goes. did the United States, did our government, when we came in, did we do a great job? <laughs> Military, or the greatest first job. responders, uh, FEMA, did we do a great job? You responded immediately, sir. And the response uh, is there. Uh, do we need to do a lot more? Of course we do. And I think everybody over here uh, recognizes there's a lot of work to be done in Puerto Rico. But with your leadership, sir, and with everybody over here, uh, we're committed to uh, uh, achieving that in the long in the long. This is actually bigger than anything we've seen. And yet I think our response was better than anyone has ever seen. <laughs> You yeah, it was sort of a chilly response there from Roseo. You, you respond. Uh, yeah. uh, was it was it great? Did we do a great job? You responded immediately, sir. And uh, and then said, "We still have more to do." 
not putting him on the spot at all, oh, right? Gee. What was he supposed to say? Well, you know, uh, kind of crappy. We uh, we had uh, 45 people uh, officially died, uh, 48 now actually, and hundreds more potentially have died. Still a million people without electricity, 90%, you know, it's... Uh... But, uh, but yes, Mr. President, you did great. Uh, it's just amazing that he would uh, put him on the spot like that. And, well, but, you know, but this re- is yeah. Trump, so it's really not that surprising, I guess. Trump unwound his arms that were tightly crossed throughout much of the meeting uh, to point to his FEMA administrator, uh, Brock Long, uh, ask him for comments. Long listed FEMA's efforts from the Virgin Islands to California and affirmed that, yes, Mr. President, quote, it's been a tremendous effort. What was he going to say? Right. Uh, the, I, I mean, <laughs> I know it's pretty dramatic. Uh, and, and, and it's foolish and crazy that we have to go through this, that unfortunately, Governor Rosseo has to be complimentary, has to be, I don't want to say obsequient, but he's got to be complimentary of Trump so that he doesn't hurt Puerto Ricans any further than he already has by his uh, delays, by the things that he says, by his insults. And God, hope I hope that he is better going forward. I'm not even sure what obsequient means. So I no wonder. Yeah, something like that. Uh, according uh, uh, to the Puerto Rican government, the vast majority of the island is still without power. Clean drinking water is still a rarity in some areas. However, we've got some good news late today from CNN on that. As you had reported in a Green News report earlier this week on. On the fact that people had become so desperate, they were drinking out of wells from super fun, from toxic Superfund sites. And these were uh, sites they knew, right, that, that these wells were Superfund sites? It wasn't, uh, it's unclear if they knew, but it's clear that they were desperate. Water from uh, CNN reports uh, late today, water from three wells at a hazardous waste site in Dorado, Puerto Rico, is safe for human consumption, according to tests conducted by CNN by a university lab. That's some good news. The Santa Rosa well on the uh, on the Superfund site contained only trace amounts of PCE, which is an industrial chemical. According to the tests that were run by the Virginia Tech Water Quality Lab, the other two wells at the Dorado Superfund site called Maguayo 2 and Maguayo 4 showed no signs of industrial contamination. Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad that CNN was there to pay for those tests. Well, and the, the EPA apparently didn't. Well, no, they uh, the EPA has taken samples from the wells at the Superfund site, but uh, they don't have results yet. They say the results are forthcoming. Uh, last week, CNN had reported that locals had been drinking from at least two wells on the Dorado groundwater contamination site west of San Juan, which is the capital. The, uh, the area was designated as a Superfund site by the U.S. EPA back in September of 2016. And how bad, just so people understand, uh, to be designated as a Superfund site, these are not just toxic sites. These are super toxic sites. They are <laughs> right? so toxic that they get a federal designation for the highest priority of funding and cleanup and resources. Essentially, it's taken over by the federal government yes. to clean it up because the companies who polluted it in the first place. And in some cases, this might be the U.S. military. Or the U.S. government, right? Uh, it, it's so bad that they can't clean it up. So the government takes it over and the Superfund is this big uh, chunk of hu- money yes. that is meant for this. 
Uh, the EPA said at the time that it de- designated this area as a um, as a Superfund sampling at the site has found chemical contamination that is impacting wells used to supply drinking water to the local communities. So at one point, that water was uh, getting into the uh, into the drinking water, into the well water, drinking water with the solvents, which include tetrachloroethylene and trichloroethylene can have serious health impacts, including damage to the liver and increasing the risk of cancer. Yet the tests by Virginia Tech, um, it should be noted uh, that that CNN had carried out, uh, were not conducted according to the strictest of protocols. CNN producers basically collected water samples uh, over the weekend in glass Perrier water bottles and shipped them off in a cooler with ice from Puerto Rico to the lab in Virginia. Virginia Tech's um, uh, scientist uh, uh, Mark Edwards was it? Uh, Edwards here uh, said that this water you sent me is meeting all federal safe drinking water standards. He says how that happened? Well, it could be the way the water flows on the ground that's not bringing contamination from the Superfund site to the well. Either way, uh, seems like it's good news. I uh, hope it holds. CNN cautions, however, the lab did not test for bacteria, which is another concern after hurricanes. And uh, has already uh, taken the lives bacteria. What's what's that uh, disease? That Leptospirosis. Leptospirosis. That's the one. That's the when animal urine uh, bacteria washes into drinking water. Has spirals. already. Yeah, that has already taken several lives. Uh, meanwhile, back at the White House on Thursday, much of the press avail between Trump and Puerto Rico's governor. According to TPM, uh, consisted of uh, sort of a terse back and forth between a, a governor overseeing a devastated island and a president who complained just days after Hurricane made its landfall that Puerto Ricans, quote, want everything done for them. Governor Rosello, uh, Roseo was forced to cautiously make clear that he was only asking for the uh, for the same the same care for Puerto Rico's three and a half million U.S. citizens that others seeking disaster relief back here on the mainland lately. And there are a lot of them between the hurricane in Florida, the hurricane in Texas, the fires out in California. He's only asking uh, for the same treatment that folks on the mainland would get. It's a catastrophic situation in Puerto Rico, as you know. We recognize that a lot of business has been done, but a lot has still uh, has to be done. We're going to talk about the immediate uh, needs for Puerto Rico, what we need to do to get out of the life-sustaining phase, what we need to do to stabilize Puerto Rico, and, of course, what we need to do to build Puerto Rico stronger uh, and better than before. Uh, Give the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico the adequate resources. Treat us the same as uh, citizens in Texas, in Florida, and elsewhere. So I do not envy him walking that uh, particular tightrope no. in that office, in that Oval Office with the president and all the media there. Uh, but he did a good job. The president at one point returned to his obsession with Puerto Rico's debt crisis. In 2016, Congress signed into law the uh, so-called PROMESA legislation, which turned control of the island's debt over to federally impo- appointed financial oversight uh, boards. Once Trump implied that the island's debt would be forgiven as part of the hurricane relief effort. Uh, But that quickly changed. His budget director uh, quickly clarified that the president meant no such thing. No, we would not forgive that debt, even though the president suggested as much. On Thursday, Trump sounded like he wanted to issue even more debt to the island. 
and to prioritize the government's position as a debt collector in this statement, Des, that I don't think we got on audio, but uh, I was I've, I've read this sentence now, this paragraph five times. I can't understand it. He said, we're going to be coming before meaning far before any existing debt that's on the island, because as you know, the island has massive debt. Any debt that's put in will be coming before that debt. We want to make sure that we put in debt and that the debt is absolutely protected. Any idea what that means? Okay, as I understand it, and David Dan is has a lot on this, so he's a great person to go check oh, out good. his work yeah, over at the I don't the know Nation. what the hell he's talking about. So as I understand it, when they passed the uh, the legislation mm-hmm. to try to to try to uh, fix the immediate crisis, financial crisis in in Puerto Rico, that in in that case they still put the bondholders first. These were vulture capitalists who went in and bought Puerto Rico's debt, mm-hmm. you know, for pennies on the dollar and in this legislation, as I understand it, they have to be paid first and they get paid in full, even though technically if you're a bondholder and you bought this, you you have accepted the risk. So, wh- so what he is saying, uh, what Trump is saying, I mm-hmm. believe, even though it is hard to tell, um, I believe what he is saying is that he wants to issue more debt for Puerto Rico for its rebuilding and force Puerto Rico... Well, we Puerto know Rico- that they're, they're, the Congress is trying to pass this loan package of uh, four or five million dollars for, uh, for Puerto Rico, right. a loan. And and so with that, if they pass a loan in Congress, then Puerto Rico then has to somehow, you know, reanimate its economy and pay the U.S. government back. And he wants to put Trump wants to put the government first before even the bondholders in getting paid back. That's as I understand it. Thank you. Because uh, it was as confusing as hell, and I wasn't sure that the uh, that even Trump knew what yeah, he well, was talking about. It was mildly incoherent, as usual. <sighs> yeah, well, he, he doesn't uh, often seem to know what he's talking about. He doesn't, frankly, know at any given second uh, what he may even be thinking. Because, you know, that changes from minute to minute, such as his optimistic take uh, earlier, just days ago, on this bipartisan response in the U.S. Senate to the health care insurance crisis that he himself created last week. So uh, I'll stick a quick break here and we'll head up to Capitol Hill next with Alice Olstein on that schizophrenic uh, set of comments from the president this week on the rare bipartisan plan to clean up his mess that he created on the Affordable Care Act. That's next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. does, doesn't she? <laughs> as much as anyone can, um, we will go ask Alice momentarily. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Okay, so 
Our story so far, let's see if I've got this straight. Last Thursday, Donald Trump signed an executive order to make cheap, crappy health insurance policies easier to sell in an effort that would likely lead to higher premiums as healthy, younger people purchase these cheap, crappy policies, growing the costs for everyone else, for older, sicker people, uh, for their policies. That night, Trump announced that the government would stop paying insurance companies money to help cover out-of-pocket costs like deductibles and copays for low-income Americans. Despite the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare's mandate that insurance companies must charge those folks less to ensure that they have access to health care, whether those insurance companies are reimbursed by the federal government or not, as the Affordable Care Act actually calls for. That immediately led to some huge increases in premiums announced around the country, including in places like Pennsylvania, where the insurance uh, commissioner there blasted Trump's announcement that he would refuse to pay these so-called cost-sharing reduction or CSR payments. Premiums increased in Pennsylvania by some 30 percent overnight for the year 2018, and similar raises have been announced in states across the country. Most affected by those premiums skyrocketing, people who don't receive Obamacare subsidies since Obamacare caps costs for those who purchase insurance via healthcare.gov and receive subsidies. So in addition to premiums skyrocketing, the costs that the federal government itself will now need to pay out also will skyrocket to the tune of some $200 billion over the next 10 years, according to the Uh, nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office, unless Congress is able to restore the payments that Trump says he will now stop paying. All right. So that was Thursday of last week. Now, on Tuesday, uh, Tuesday morning this week, Republican Senator Lamar Alexander of Tennessee and Democratic Senator Patty Murray of Washington state announced a bipartisan agreement to pass a measure that would restore those CSR subsidy payments by the federal government. Uh, On Tuesday afternoon, shortly afterward, Donald Trump lauded that agreement, calling it, quote, a short-term solution so that we don't have this very dangerous little period, including dangerous periods for insurance companies, by the way. He added, for a period of one or two years, we will have a very good solution. But we're going to have a great solution ultimately for health care, he said. He also lauded himself for bringing Democrats and Republicans together in the Congress to finally get stuff done. That dangerous little period that he referred to, that was the one that he created by stopping these subsidy payments that both he and the Obama administration had been making since the bill was enacted seven years ago. Democrats and some Republicans alike began to breathe a cautious sigh of relief after that statement of support from the president over this potential bipartisan solution to Trump's newest self-inflicted crisis that would affect his own voters in states that he won as much or more than anyone. But by Tuesday night, just hours later, Trump's support for this measure that he had lauded hours earlier began to wane. At a speech to the right-wing Heritage Foundation, Trump said, quote, While I commend the bipartisan work done by Senators Alexander and Murray, and I do commend it, I continue to believe Congress must find a solution 
to the Obamacare mess instead of providing bailouts to insurance companies. Yes, he had returned to his false premise that sharing costs with insurance companies to help keep health care costs down for low-income Americans, that that was somehow a bailout for insurance companies. That's a Fox News-fueled propaganda line that uh, Obamacare or ACA opponents have been using now for, for many years to try and tarnish these subsidies that helped people who needed to get health care while keeping premiums down for all Americans. Then, by Wednesday morning, just you know, 24 hours later, uh, on Twitter, after more on the far right in Congress and the media... See Fox and Friends, literally, uh, after they had said they could never support something that helped keep Obamacare alive, no matter how many people it also helped keep alive and no matter how much money is saved for the U.S. federal government. Trump tweeted on Wednesday morning, I am supportive of Lamar as a person, talking about Lamar Alexander, and also of the process, but I can never support bailing out insurance companies who have made a fortune with Obamacare. Later that day, before meeting with uh, Senate Finance Committee members, Trump said, quote, If something can happen, that's fine, but I won't do anything to enrich the insurance companies. By Wednesday afternoon, White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders called the Alexander Murray Agreement, quote, A good step in the right direction, but it's not a full approach, and we want something that goes a little bit farther. So uh, that was uh, just, what, a 24-hour period at that point where he went from, where Trump went from full-throated support to, eh, I don't know, I can never support something like this. This uh, roller coaster has now left Senate supporters of the measure off balance and confused. I hadn't heard that. I thought yesterday he was liking it said uh, Senator David Perdue, Republican of Georgia, in surprise on Wednesday when asked about Trump's opposition to the insurer payments deal that was crafted by uh, Alexander and Murray. Which, I think, brings us to whatever fresh hell Congress members who aren't insane are trying to salvage today with payments currently stopped to insurance companies, lawsuits filed by about 20 state attorneys general to try and force the government to keep its word and follow the law, and the future of bipartisan Alexander Murray legislation lauded just hours previously by President Trump, now in great peril, along with the health care, perhaps, of millions of Americans. Here to fill us in on that fresh, entirely self-inflicted and unnecessary hell, reporting from right in the middle of it on Capitol Hill, as usual, is TPM's congressional reporter, Alice Olstein. Alice, welcome back to the broadcast. Thank you. We will never be done talking about healthcare. <laughs> Apparently we won't. I would love to be, but we won't. All right, let me, let me start here by uh, cutting to the chase first. You've been covering the... Uh, the reactions to all of this on Capitol Hill and your reporting at Talking Points Memo. Uh, and the good news is that as of late today, it seems the Alexander Murray bill now seems to have about 24 Senate co-sponsors, about 12 on each side, you report at TPM. But based on your coverage and others, I see no way this thing actually gets passed, either through the GOP Senate or perhaps especially the GOP House, unless 
The GOP leadership in both chambers opens it up for a full vote that allows many more Democrats, likely than Republicans, to push this thing through. Am I seeing this correctly, Alice? Well, the strategy for proponents of the bill has to really be taking this one step at a time. And actually, the prospects in the Senate look a lot rosier today. Like, like I reported, mm-hmm. all of the co-sponsors were announced. There are additional people who support the bill. And even if you take every Republican who officially co-sponsored, add to that every single Senate Democrat, which uh, Minority Leader Chuck Schumer says are on board, mm-hmm. that gives you 60 votes. And so if they allow a vote, it would pass. Now, the question is, what kinds of changes might be forced, demanded, mm-hmm. amendments, you know, this could go a lot of directions. Mm-hmm. Uh, will it go through committee at all, or would it go straight to a vote? Now, I think it's important to note that of the Republican co-sponsors, many are very important chairmen and chairwomen of mm-hmm. committees, and so that puts pressure on McConnell mm. to at least allow a vote. It would, it would look bad for him to deny a vote on a bill that so many members of his own party are backing. Do you know, is there a way, if uh, McConnell does not uh, allow this for a vote, is there a way to bring this to the floor of the Senate? Uh, we can talk about the House in a second, but is there a way to bring this to the to the Senate without uh, Senate leadership uh, approval? It's, it's all about it's all about mounting the pressure mm-hmm. to make that happen. I and see. I think that the announcement of all of the co-sponsors, including several committee chairs, is, is a key step in that. The uh, question that occurs to me is, uh, why would GOP leadership, uh, particularly in the House, uh, do this before an election year? I think Speaker Ryan has already said that he's against the bill, even if it gets through the Senate. Uh, why would they? Uh, why would they even want to do this when their political operative, uh, read donor base, will kill them for you know keeping Obamacare alive? And the the president has now decided that he is also against the plan that he initially favored just forty eight hours uh, or so ago. Uh, public pressure is that is, is that the key at this point? Yes, and I think if the Senate did pass the bill, it would put a lot of pressure on the House to act. And keep in mind, this is this bill is coming kind of too late to make anything better for 2018, for next year. That was the reason why there was so much scramble over the summer to get this done, because if they had gotten it done by mid-September, the insurers could have lowered their rates and prevented some of the big increases we're seeing. Now they blew past that deadline because they wanted to take one more whack at repeal, which failed, as, as we all remember. And then they came back to these negotiations. And so now it's all about stabilizing the market, preventing additional chaos. And we won't really see the benefits of this until 2019, um, end of 2018, beginning of 2019. Now that's right when the midterms are going to be. And so does the Republican leadership want their members to face re-election amid all of this healthcare chaos that they might get blamed for, as many polls indicate, I think perhaps not. And there is something in this, uh, as I understand it, in this agreement as it's currently written, uh, you know, sort of setting aside the schizophrenic Trump positions here for the moment. Uh, tell me, what does this agreement, which was uh, you know, seen as promising by many, not by me, but many others, uh, when it was initially announced by uh, uh, Alexander and Murray a few days ago, 
Uh, what does it actually do? Because as I understand it, one of the benefits in here is for Democrats. Um, hundred million dollars or so in enrollment outreach that could affect the 2018 open enrollment period? That's right. So the outreach funding was really interesting. And um, I wrote a piece yesterday. Mm-hmm. I obtained the memos that Democrats and Republicans were circulating to their colleagues to try to convince them to support this. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, they made pretty different arguments about why they should support it. And the, Demo- the Democrats' memo had a lot about that outreach funding. Um, now, this is money that the Trump administration cut over the summer that goes to ads and other ways of informing the public about when open enrollment is, how to enroll, how to choose a plan, et cetera. And the Republican memo did not mm-hmm. mention that money at all. So um, but that, it's in, that was definitely... But it's mm-hmm. it's it's in the bill, and, and I wonder... Um, it, it's... I, I know that, and we should note that uh, open enrollment is beginning to uh, will will begin on November one, and that mm-hmm. you, Alice, have been very instrumental in getting out word how the Trump administration has already, uh, you know, has been had already cut that funding. So they had that funding; they still presumably have that funding. Why would the Trump administration be any more? Uh, obligated to actually spend it and to do this uh, open enrollment um, uh, funding and and advertising and so forth when they already had the money. So even if it's passed here, will Democrats actually gain anything from this if Trump doesn't use it? Actually, yes. So this bill, if if it passes, if it doesn't get massively changed, Mm -hmm. it includes a lot of very strong reporting requirements where uh, the Department of Health and Human Services has to report to Congress that they are indeed using this money for its intended purpose. Mm. And so we had Chuck Schumer this week touting that as Mm. an anti-sabotage measure. That was the term they kept using. And so, in fact, yes, it it does include those protections. And that would would apply to 2018, in fact, if they're able to somehow pass this quickly? Yes. And I, I would say that one important piece of the bill is restoring the subsidies for the insurance companies for the end of 2017, because as it is now, the subsidies are cut off right now, even though there's a few months left in the year, mm. and the insurance companies can't raise their rates to make up for that loss until next year. And so in the intervening months, they just have to eat this loss, which will total about a billion dollars. Um, and they are not happy about that. Aside from the, I guess they're not, uh, aside from the uh, the... the the lack of chaos, perhaps, that we will all get and uh, stabilization somewhat of the insurance markets. What do the Republicans get out of this uh, above and beyond that uh, in regard to this state waiver flexibility? What what is that about and how is that different from what the uh, what the president announced would happen anyway in his executive order last Thursday? Sure. So the concessions the Democrats made in these negotiations were a lot about these um, state flexibility waivers, which is a process where states can apply to waive some of the requirements and regulations in the Affordable Care Act if they argue that their alternative system and plan would not result in a bunch of people losing their coverage or seeing their premiums go way up or, you know, any of these parade of horribles. So this sort of just loosens those requirements. It makes it faster for a state to get a waiver. It cuts the the processing time in half. It makes it possible for a governor to just apply for the waiver without going through the state legislature, which also can 
slow things down, and it makes it easier for if one state gets a waiver that state, other states can copy what, what they're doing more mm-hmm. quickly instead of having to start from scratch. The, uh, the deal, as uh, Axios reports, includes uh, policies that many experts from across the ideological spectrum say will effectively help stabilize the marketplaces. If both sides can claim victory here and thus successfully pass the bill, then millions of people could be better off. Senator John Thune, who uh, is a member of the GOP leadership, is he not? He's like third in the Senate? Okay. Mm -hmm. He said yesterday that I think, he said, quote, I think both sides are motivated to get something that keeps the market stable. But that is, but it's unclear to me, at least from uh, their reporting, if that was before or after he had heard that Trump now seemed to be against it. That uh, those statements seem to catch Lamar Alexander uh, off off guard. That uh, he said that he had been the president had been calling and asking him to do exactly this. Has there been a change, as far as you can tell, among uh, folks either in the Senate or the House when it comes to support for this bill? since the uh, changed positions of the uh, of the president? Well, the president has continued to keep changing and has given, even today and yesterday and the day before, all kinds. Of, he's been all over the map on this. Mm-hmm. And every time he opens his mouth, it's a new and confusing statement. So mm-hmm. no one has any idea, really, where he stands on this. Um, there, the most that Alexander and proponents of the bill are hoping for is that the president actually takes a look at the bill and considers it. Uh, it's unclear if that's happened yet or not. His his most recent statement was that he's happy that there are negotiations going on or something to that effect um, without saying how he feels about the product of those negotiations. Um, so I, I think they're just trying to rally as many votes as they can and worry about the president later. Am I overlooking how this, uh, these CSR payments, uh, subsidies that I've, I've explained, uh, am I overlooking how this is in some way as uh, the president seems to now be referring to it, an insurance company bailout, uh, which is language that Trump is now using as well? Is there something... Uh, more than the seemingly blatant political propaganda to that claim, or is that all it is? It's just using the word bailout because they uh, know that freaks out Americans. Um, yes, it's not accurate to characterize it as a bailout. Mm-hmm. The money, by law, has to go towards lowering costs for low-income patients. The companies don't keep the money. The companies are required by law to bring down the costs for low-income patients to lower their deductibles and premiums and to subsidize that. They're required to do that under the Affordable Care Act. This money just went towards that purpose. So they're just going to have to, eat, like I said, eat the loss and, and continue doing what they're required to do by law without getting compensated for it. The insurance companies, not right. not the government, which is now going to have to pay more if this isn't uh, enacted. You report that the uh, that GOP uh, memo Uh, You had those two different memos, talking points Mm -hmm. memos, if you will, uh, ends with a uh, with a stark warning about what will happen if Congress does not pass this bill. Higher insurance premiums, more federal debt and insurers fleeing the market and leaving Americans with zero plan options. This chaos, the memo cautions, will send Democrats on, quote, a four lane highway to a single payer solution. 
Alice Holstein, is that just bluster from the Republican caucus at this point, or is there real fear about the momentum uh, around the Democrats' single-payer uh, Medicare for All proposal at this point? I, it, it's, it's kind of interesting to me and a little bit funny that they, the Republicans clearly think it's a winning argument to keep invoking the spooky specter of single-payer when Democrats are not in charge of any branch of government at this point and have absolutely no means of enacting it anytime soon. But apparently Republicans... And, and, it's, very, and it's very popular. <laughs> it's very popular among the public in general. Single-payer, Medicare for all. Sure, but we, we don't have we don't have a viable proposal on the table mm-hmm. that has any hope of becoming actual law or policy. And yet it keeps getting invoked in all of these situations. And so is this an effective way to scare some Republicans into voting for a stabilization bill? I don't know. We'll find out. This uh, effort uh, got just a minute or two left here. Speaking with Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo, this uh, this n- this effort now by uh, Senators Alexander and Murray, this is distinct, right, from the longer-term bipartisan effort that they had been working on before the uh, self-imposed CSR crisis. At this point, uh, what had they been working on previously, and where does that effort now stand at this point? It's actually, it's the same thing. They've been working on this since the summer. They knew there was a possibility, a threat of Trump ending the CSR payments, and they wanted to get a bill done and stabilize the market before that bomb was dropped, and they were not able to, so they had to do it after the bomb was dropped. So this is the same legislation, it's just now with more urgency. Yes, they've been working on it for months. Mm -hmm. And if this does not move... Uh, as I am still dubious that it will, uh, at least mm-hmm. through both houses. Um, what happens? What happens to the insurance markets? What's hap- what happens, I think, that uh, most people are concerned about? What happens to health care for individual Americans if this does not move through? Well, actually, despite, you know, the sky is falling kind of rhetoric we've been hearing, things seem to actually be holding on okay for next year, even if this doesn't pass. The insurance companies that were scared and would want to leave the markets have already done so. They did that over the summer. Months ago, there's been a lot of insurers dropping out. And yet, no county in the country, as we speak, is bare. There was the threat of that happening, but all counties have been covered by at least one insurer. Now, having just one insurer to choose from is not great, but it's better than zero, obviously. And we have built into the law, these markets are pretty resilient. What the companies are doing is they're, most of them are raising the cost of the silver plans on the market, mm-hmm. and those are the ones that the Obamacare tax credits help cover the cost. And so as the premiums go up, the tax credits go up for most people, for more than 80% of people. So more than 80% of people will not feel these increases in shocks at all. You know, also people who are, you know, on Medicare and Medicaid won't feel it. I was going to say, so it'll be pretty contained. Eighty percent of the people who uh, who purchase their uh, health insurance via the healthcare.gov marketplace, right? Right, which is already a small percentage of the country. Okay, gotcha. Well, uh, fingers are crossed. You uh, you quote uh, Ohio Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown saying, "This is so bad. If McConnell and Cornyn and the president don't let Alexander Murray and all of us fix this, it's going to mean higher prices. It's going to be terrible for the country. I can't imagine they would just blow this up. I can't imagine anybody would be that mean spirited." 
Alice, I read that and I thought to myself, uh, well, imagine it, Senator. <laughs> it, it, it is very possible. And I will say, yes, the, the premiums for middle class people who don't qualify for subsidies are going to go up. They are going to feel that pain. It's a small number of people, but for those people, it's, it's very real and very terrible. The people have less options. Than, than they than they would have had these subsidies not been cut off, and I think you could see real damage down the road beyond next year if if this isn't rectified. That said, the markets have shown themselves to be a little more resilient than a lot of people assumed. We haven't seen um, insurers just running for the exits on mass, and so it, it it's a real mixed bag. Alice Olstein, reporter at Talking Points, Memo, Talking Points Memo, covering national politics, Congress, and all the fresh healthcare hell that comes with it these days. You can find her on the Twitters at Alice Olstein and, of course, at TalkingPointsMemo.com. Thanks, Alice. Yes, we w- probably will be con- talking about this forever, so we'll be calling you again soon. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Good luck. You know, I she's... Uh, Seems very optimistic, to, uh, <laughs> frankly. I don't know how this uh, bill actually gets passed. She cites public pressure. Uh, in fact, last week, I think it was, uh, feels like last month, we spoke with uh, Igor Volsky, who also said the same thing. This is going to be a matter of the same coalition, essentially, that brought public pressure that killed the Republicans' many attempts to kill the Affordable Care Act, that it's going to take those same folks now trying to fix this mess that Donald Trump created. And it's interesting, if you look at the co-sponsors of this uh, Alexander Murray bill, uh, on the Democratic side, you've got Angus King, uh, independent from Maine, uh, Gene Shaheen and Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, Joe Donnelly from Indiana. I think he's up for re-election this year. Amy Klobuchar and Al Franken in Minnesota, Joe Manchin in West Virginia, Claire McCaskill in Michigan. Miss, uh, I'm Missouri. sorry, Missouri. Uh, Heidi Heitkamp in um, uh, North, where is she? North, North Dakota. Dakota. Uh, Tom Carper in Delaware, Tammy Baldwin in Wisconsin. You know, uh, McCaskill, Heitkamp, they're up for re-election this year in red states, in states that Donald Trump won. And one big uh, mansion as well, I guess. They're on board with this. So it seems clear that they're, uh, you know, not afraid there will be some sort of backlash in these very, very Republican states. For the record, on the Republican side, uh, current uh, co-sponsors, Mike Rounds of South Dakota, Lindsey Graham, South Carolina, uh, John McCain of Arizona, Bill Cassidy, Louisiana, Susan Collins of Maine, Joni Ernst of Iowa, Murkowski of uh, Alaska, Richard Burr of North Carolina, Bob Corker of Tennessee, Johnny Isaacson of Arkansas, and Chuck Grassley of Iowa. So that's a lot also, a lot of red states. That's a shocking number of Republicans who are in favor. Uh, Apparently they're trying to send a message, whether they can get that message all the way through to leadership or not. And then the bigger question, I guess, is what happens in the U.S. House where it's going to be a really tough fight. Paul Ryan has already said he's against this. Yeah. Well, it's where all good legislation goes to die. Well, maybe so. That's what they say about the U.S. Senate. But this, this time true. it's it's reversed. So uh, if you have an opinion on this, you can call your senators and your Congress member at 202-224-3121. That's 202-224-3121. 
Sorry. Yeah, we got to do it again. Uh, But there you go. All right. Quick break. And we are back with the Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. You do it. Do what? Oh, go, go. Oh, um, uh, welcome back to the Bradcast. I'm Desi Doyen, <laughs> or something like that. What from, do you say? That's right, from bradblog.com. Oh, yeah. What do you say? Like, this is your first time sitting in here? <laughs> uh, all right, well, yes, welcome back. Uh, and uh, another uh, news-filled, news-chalked green news report straight ahead for us. So let's get right to it. This is nothing more than a big oil polar Alaska National Wildlife Refuge on the chopping block again. Don't clean up right now. It's not safe. California officials warn of toxic ash from the state's devastating wildfires. Like Puerto Rico, U.S. Virgin Islands struggling without power or clean water. Plus, Shell Oil opens up electric vehicle chargers at its gas stations in Britain. All of those struggles and ironies straight ahead. From bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I'm against war, except in cases of national security, or if we need oil. (laughs) Or if, you know, we feel like having a war. Besides that... Besides that, this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, encouraging news for the most part this week coming out of California and those devastating wildfires. Yes, firefighters continue to gain ground against those deadly Northern California wine country wildfires. Now officials are warning returning residents to not sift through what remains of their homes because of toxins in the ash from burned plastics, electronics, household pesticides, and other pollutants. That's according to Sonoma County Public Health official Scott Alonzo here in an interview with CBS. News. Don't clean up right now. It's not safe. The toxic ash and the debris is harmful. We don't want you sifting through it. We don't want children in it. Do not touch it. And that's a lot of people that he's saying that to. Some 6,000 
uh, houses and commercial structures were leveled. Yes, and when it rains, those toxins will be washed into the watershed. And some rain is predicted for this week. Good news for the fires, bad news for the water drinkers. Meanwhile, the plight of the battered U.S. Virgin Islands has fallen off the media's radar, much like the ongoing humanitarian crisis in Puerto Rico after catastrophic back-to-back hurricanes. Some power has been restored to St. Thomas, but local media confirms cases of bacterial diseases caused by contaminated water. On Wednesday, officials on St. John tweeted that their island has been 100% without electricity for more than 40 days. Mm. Infrastructure and economic losses are estimated to be more than $5 billion for both islands, but the current disaster relief package in Congress offers only a $5 billion loan for both Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands for rebuilding. And of course, Donald Trump recently said he met the president of the Virgin Islands when it turns out that Donald Trump is the president of the U.S. Virgin Islands. Sad but true. Meanwhile, for nearly 30 years, Republicans in Congress have tried to open up the public's pristine Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil and gas drilling. And this time, they may succeed by tying it to a must-pass budget resolution, which, under Senate rules, only needs 51 votes to pass. Republicans want to open the refuge to drilling to raise revenue to offset their proposed $1.5 trillion tax cut. At a Tuesday rally on Capitol Hill to call voters' attention to the Republican scheme, Democratic Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts noted the absurdity of the move now that the U.S. is an oil exporter. So we would be drilling in the Arctic refuge to export to other countries in the world. We would despoil our own sacred land uh, in order to help oil companies sell oil to China. And this time they may actually get away with it. But some good news that got lost amid all of the recent disasters. Canadian pipeline company TransCanada has abandoned plans to build two controversial proposed tar sands pipelines, the Energy East and the Eastern Main Line, after Canada's energy regulator implemented tough new requirements for approval. A growing number of proposed pipeline projects are now being canceled due to low oil prices and strong public opposition. TransCanada was having problems finding customers for their still-proposed Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, Any idea if that's moving forward? They say it is, but we'll see what happens in the long term. In a sharply worded rebuke to the Trump administration, a federal judge recently reinstated Obama-era rules requiring the oil and gas industry to stop methane leaks from drilling operations on public lands, effective immediately. It's estimated the public loses $330 million a year in royalties because of the leaks and intentional flaring on federal lands. That's enough to power about 5 million homes a year. So it releases dangerous methane into the air and it loses money for the U.S., That's some smart so-called conservatism right there. Finally, in the wake of recent announcements from Britain, China, and France to phase out conventional gasoline-powered cars by 2040, oil giant Royal Dutch Shell this week opened up the first wave of fast-charging electric vehicle charging stations at gas stations in the U.K. Shell also announced it has purchased the electric vehicle charging network company New Motion and its 30,000 private charging stations at homes and offices across Europe. Yeah, as just about every car maker in the world right now says, we are going electric. The writing is on the wall. For much more writing on the wall, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com for those stories and the ones we couldn't get to. Find us, follow us, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. 
I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyne. And this has been your Green News Report. Cause the writing's on the wall. The writing's on the wall. I guess that's either a good or a bad thing. Uh, the writing's on the wall when it comes to electric uh, cars and the end of the oil business. And so many other things we covered. The writing may be on the wall there as well. Uh, Des, you mentioned, I know you wanted to to mention earlier, I had given the uh, phone number for Congress in regards to health care and that fight. But there's another reason people, uh, you suggest that people should call their Congress members. Yes, if, if you care about the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, which is pristine and has been protected for low these many decades, if you care about that, now is an excellent time and the most important time to call your senator to tell them to remove that amendment um, in the legislation because they're going to not only do it for the Alaska National Wildlife Refuge, but also for every other piece of public land and ocean that you care about. About. And if you would like to tell them not to do it, that number is 202-224-3121, 202-224-3121. That's to reach your member of Congress. You can, uh, your, your member of Congress and, and your both senator. your senators. Yep. Uh, and if you'd like to tell them to go ahead and yes, please do it. Please despoil the uh, pristine National Wildlife uh, Refuge in Alaska, which they have been trying to do for three decades if you would like to encourage them to do that so that we can sell more oil to China, you can do that at 202-224-3121. Is that it? That's it. That's it. All right. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, Alice Olstein of TalkingPointsMemo.com. And as ever, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us, it is as ever greatly appreciated and an honor that you allow us into your living room your car or somehow into your ears (laughs) you can uh, drop me email if you like i'm bradcast at bradblog.com on the facebooks and the twitters i am simply the brad blog and as ever my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to help us continue to try to do what we do try to do every day over your internet and most importantly your public airwaves. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.